You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. One might imagine any hope for the future has long been abandoned for them. After all, Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 90, and they have now entered that season of life when you're hoping that your savings and your social security are going to be enough. When you're busy keeping track of doctor's appointments rather than scheduling parent-teacher conferences. Scholars identify different voices in the book of Genesis, indicating that parts were written at different times in Israel's history. And most think that this portion of Genesis was written during the exile. And if that is true, how might that help us understand this story better? We might imagine that those who have been taken in exile have grown discouraged, that they're devastated by the loss of their homeland from the long years of living in exile under foreign rule. And perhaps they may be wondering what the future could possibly hold for them. And that all those promises that they had been told, that they believed, what about them? Now, this is not the first conversation that Abram has had with God. It's the third rendition of God's promises to him. First, Abram receives a call, a call to leave his homeland and set out on a journey to a new land and a new home. And the second conversation Abram has has with God, he hears a promise that he and Sarai will have many descendants. After a while, when nothing seemed to change, he and Sarai try to wrestle that promise for themselves through a child born by Sarai's slave woman, Hagar. And now there is this third conversation. And what we notice in these conversations is that God's covenant always begins with God. It's God's initiative. God is the one doing the creating here. This God is God El Shaddai, God Almighty, literally God of the mountains. And this God of the mountains extends to Abram a new name, Abraham, and a summons with that name to live in a continued relationship with God. And God's covenant extends further to Sarai with a new name for her and a new identity as well. And beyond the two of them, The promise extends even further. The covenant includes the land on which they are living. The land will be theirs for everlasting. They will have a home. How wonderful that must sound 
after wandering for so many years. They will forever be connected to the land and their descendants will inhabit that land. And the blessing goes even further. Nations will be blessed through them. Their descendants will be the Jewish people and more. The three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all of them come from Abraham and Sarah. At this news, Abraham laughs. He falls down on his face and laughs because he cannot imagine such a blessing. It's too much. Often our visions of God's blessings stop with us. And how God might be blessing us in this moment. And perhaps we might extend our thoughts to those we love or care for. But here in this covenant story with Abraham and Sarah, even as Abraham is rolling on the ground laughing, God's blessing is being expanded beyond Abraham's dreams. In our gospel reading, Peter is on his own quest for a blessing. He has been bedazzled by Jesus. In fact, Peter thinks he's got the corner on Jesus' gig. He's seen the miracles and the healings. They fed thousands and they brought sight to the blind. Uh-oh, the best must be yet to come, he thinks for himself. And immediately prior to our reading today, Peter stakes out that claim for his future. He's passed the first quiz for a disciple of Jesus, answering Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says emphatically, you are the Christ. Now Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And it's a major Hellenistic city in the far north, rebuilt by Herod Philip, named Caesarea to signify it as an imperial site of Rome. And it's Mark's way of telling us that this path of discipleship, this journey that Jesus is on, will be on a collision course with the powers that be. And so on the way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus bursts Peter's bubble, his hopes for the future. In a way, Jesus says to Peter, I am not the savior you've been looking for. All the crowds and the accolades, those soon will fade. As for what's ahead of me, Jesus says, there will be great suffering, rejection, and death. Well, this is quite unacceptable to Peter. One might imagine that he's already made plans, and those plans don't include painful executions. His are political ambitions with aspirations of glory and power. And if we're honest with ourselves, we understand where Peter's coming from, because all this talk of suffering, rejection, and death is not a religion that easily attracts us. We prefer our religion triumphant, victorious, one with an easily pointed to track record of successes, one that fills auditoriums and stadiums, that walks in the halls of power, that has a seat at the table where all the decisions are made. But Jesus puts Peter and us in our place. With a rebuke as sharp as any Jesus has hurled at demonic opponents, he says, get out of my sight, you Satan, you, because you're not thinking in God's terms, but in human ones. 
Poor Peter. Poor Peter. Jesus lays out a different course from the one that Peter desires in his heart. The way of God, Jesus says, will not be rosy, nor will it be easy. First, one must deny oneself, but not in a self-hating way. I think of it rather as a practice of self-examination with openness to change. A practice guided by honesty, not skipping over the tough bits because we might be uncomfortable. And not in an ascetic way, refusing pleasures in life in order to obtain some spiritual achievement. Because Jesus is not inviting us to some spiritual Olympics training event. Jesus understands denying oneself means including our self and our story in God's story. Understanding that the small narratives that we write for ourselves are inadequate when we think about God's story. Our vision can be so limited. Even if we think we're the center of the universe, our universe is so small. We are often defensive, narrow in vision, self-absorbed, too often focused on our own survival. To deny oneself is to be open to the possibility that the future God has for us might make us laugh with joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer offers us this way to understand what Jesus is inviting us to. He writes, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and of no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Secondly, Jesus invites us to pick up our cross. Now, this is not the, the cross-to-bear sayings that your great Aunt Alice may have been fond of saying. Remember in Jesus' day that the cross was a sign of extreme dishonor. New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson writes, quote, crucifixion was a Roman form of the public service announcement. Do not engage in sedition as this person has, or your fate will be similar, end quote. Crucifixion served as a warning for those folks who remained. James Cone, in his powerful work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, finds deep connections between the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans and the horrific experience of lynching of African Americans by whites in the United States. It served not only as a means of painful death, but as a stark warning to others. This will be your fate if you step out of line. In Jesus and in his willingness to take up the cross, we see God's commitment to be in relationship with human beings despite humanity's sinfulness. Taking up the cross is not a submissive acceptance of suffering. In their essay entitled For God So Loved the World, Joan Carlson Brown and Rebecca Parker push back against this idea of redemptive suffering through submissiveness. They write, quote, It is not acceptance of suffering that gives life. It is commitment to life that gives life. 
The question, moreover, is not, am I willing to suffer? But, do I desire fully to live? End quote. When Jesus speaks of taking up one's cross, it is a participatory action. Jesus takes up his cross because God is aligning God's self with humanity. So the suffering is not the end in and of itself. The suffering occurs because those who are the beneficiaries of this status quo feel threatened by Jesus's message. Understood this way, taking up one's cross today means it is a dangerous way of aligning ourselves with those who are victims of injustice, those whom society works hard to keep in their place. It is not an embrace of suffering for suffering's sake, but it is a refusal to let go of life. So when we practice denying ourselves and picking up our crosses, Jesus says that we paradoxically will find that we are not in this alone. That when we take up his way, we take up the way of solidarity and companionship with God. It is not a safe road. It is not an easy road. But it is the way of Jesus. Jesus, ever the teacher, tries to put it another way for his disciples, saying, if you try to save your own life, you'll lose it. The Greek word here is psyche. And it is a richer term than life or even soul. It's that spiritual center of who we truly are, complex creatures created in the image of God. But if you lose your life, your psyche for me and for the sake of the good news, you'll discover you found life for real, Jesus is saying. A more abundant life, one not focused on this small world of oneself, but a life that is expanding out in connection to God and to others. As Howard Thurman wrote, Quote, God is making room in my heart for compassion. The awareness that where my life begins is where your life begins. The awareness that a sensitivity to your needs cannot be separated from a sensitivity to my needs. That the awareness that the joys of my heart, my heart are never mine alone, nor are my sorrows. He goes on to write, I struggle against the work of God in my heart. I want to be left alone. I want my boundaries to remain fixed that I may be at rest. But even now, as I turn to God in the quietness, God's work in me is ever the same. God is at work enlarging the boundaries of my heart. If that sounds too difficult, we can remember that Jesus is talking to Peter. Peter, whose life is a beautiful example of a heart whose boundaries were being enlarged every step of the way. Remember. Remember that one day he will learn to deny not Jesus, as he did in that courtyard while Jesus was being interrogated, but he will learn to deny himself. 
He will learn that all the walls carefully constructed to keep outsiders away are being torn down by God's amazing love. Following Jesus will lead Peter to trespass on all those conventions he took for granted. He will find himself making his way to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and he will learn that God's realm is larger than his own understanding again. And Peter will become the staunch advocate for God's grace extended to the Gentiles without restriction. And Peter... Dear Peter, who wavered at Jesus' execution, will one day, according to church tradition, take up his own cross and be crucified upside down in Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero. We know from our vantage point in time that the political execution of Jesus will spark a global movement. That his resurrection will push his followers out into the world. That they will span the globe and their movement will far outlast the power and the rule of the Roman Empire. And Peter's actions will have consequences far beyond his small provincial world. The blessings of God will ripple out far beyond Peter's capacity to imagine. We are given two stories today, two invitations for us. Both call us out of ourselves. Both call us away from our narrow focus and to embrace a long-term vision. To imagine how what we do, who we are, will give birth to blessings far beyond ourselves and our small circle. Yes. Yes, we may see God's blessing in our own lives, those that begin with you and me, but God's grace is always enlarging the circle. It never stays put. It will not be contained. So the question before us is, can we say yes? Yes, as best we can in this moment we find ourselves in. Do we desire to live fully? Can we say yes to that? With all the faith that we can muster, knowing that God is not asking for perfection from us, but will instead bless our imperfections. Can we say yes and allow God to expand the boundaries of our hearts, even when it's uncomfortable or risky? Can we say yes and step out as best we can with our best efforts, knowing we will often fall short? Can we step out with our best understandings, knowing that we always see through a glass darkly, with our best hopes and our dreams, knowing that God's dreams are always far greater than our own? Can we say yes? Yes to God in this moment knowing that God will take our imperfect offerings and bless them. Bless them beyond our imagining. Knowing that God will take our hearts and enlarge them bit by bit, one act of grace at a time. Can we say, yes, Lord, yes. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. 
To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.